Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with me, Barrister Chris Patterson, where we will give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and future. Each episode features a new guest who will stimulate your interest in the law and will give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. Today I have with me Judge David Harvey, who is a district court judge based here in Auckland. He's also an educator and award-winning academic on legal and information technology matters. Judge Harvey has been at the forefront in the coalface of technology use within courtrooms for nearly three decades. He's written several books and academic papers, including the publication of his doctoral thesis as a book, The Law Imprinted and Englast, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. I will come back to the judge on that pronunciation and the background to it. But look, the subline to his doctoral thesis, his book, is The Printing Press as an Agent of Change in Law and Legal Culture, 1475 to 1642. And his earlier books, which he has published on law and the internet, are titled internet.law.nz, now in its fourth revised edition. Judge Harvey commenced legal practice in Auckland in the early 1970s. In 1982, he became a partner of the law firm of Earl Kent and Company, now Morrison Kent. At one point, he was in legal practice with the former Deputy Prime Minister and leader of New Zealand First, Winston Peters. His legal practice centred primarily on family law. Uh, In 1980, he won New Zealand Mastermind and went on to win the international title the following year, his specialist topic being Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. He was appointed a district court judge in uh, October 1988. In July 2016, Judge Harvey became the founding director of the ICT Law Centre within the Auckland University Law School. David has been a TEDx presenter on the topic of cyberbullying. David launched his blog, The IT Country Justice, in May 2012, which provides a fascinating insight into how information technology has changed the law and its potential to better our system of justice. Good morning, David, and welcome. Good morning. Thanks, um, Chris. Thank you. I'm very uh, humbled and honoured to have you with me today. It's, uh, it is a great honour, and I'm really looking forward to delving deep into uh, issues of information technology in the courtroom. I want to start off, first of all, by just talking about your background a little bit and your interest in technology. If we can jump back to when you practised law, you became a partner in 1982, which was just shortly after the 286 microprocessor had been launched. In fact, it might have even been the same year. What was practising law in the very early 80s and use of technology like? Can you just sort of describe, because a lot of our listeners won't have even been born. Yeah, there would be two major companies that were involved. One was IBM, of course, as you might expect. And the other was an outfit that I don't think is in existence anymore called Wang. Wang. And Wang did word processors. As a sort of introduction to that, sort of going back a little bit further, about 1979, I received a a summons from my father. He has a tendency to do that. And he said, you've got to come over here and have a look at this. And he had, uh, sitting on his desk, a Model 1 Radio Shack TRS-80 with a massive 16-kilobyte memory (laughs) and, and a tape drive for storing data. And he'd taught himself how to code. And he had 
worked out a program to track his investments and so on and so forth. And he said to me, you know, with all of your university education, which was a constant needle that he would have, if you don't know how to work one of these things, you're going to be illiterate. And he sort of set a time frame about 25 years, which might have been a little bit generous. So the message that I got from that was, okay, how do I get hold of one of these things? And like it, like it or not, he handed me the card of the guy who sold them. And so I went out and bought one. Taught myself how to code and so on and so forth. And as a result of that, when word processing started to become an issue, the firm said, you know about computers, you can do this. <laughs> sort of by default, it landed on your desk, the responsibility for dragging the firm into the it, 20th century. It was a shared project, but I was able to deal with and sort of understand a lot of the technical stuff and so on and so forth. It was an interesting ride, and then after that, in the mid-1980s, we moved into automated trust accounting and uh, management stuff and so on and so forth using, using computers in the firm. And when I left, they were talking about setting up a local area network. This was 1989. This was before the internet. So, you know, that, that was, it actually was quite forward-thinking. Talking about the internet, and we'll come back to that in a bit more detail, as you and I both know, Deep in the dark parts of Ivy Tower universities, the internet was starting to be used. It certainly wasn't easily accessible to members of the public, but the academic institutions were seeing the potential for it as a way of sharing information between them. Yeah, yep. yep. was, it was driven primarily by computer science people, mm. and then it spread into other faculties and so on. So it became an information sharing business. And then if we jump through to 1988 when you were elevated to the district court bench, and this is just about the time that the computer processor or the PC processor moved to the, the 486, so we'd gone from 16-bit to 32-bit, really started opening some doors and opportunities for embracing technology and its capability, particularly around word processing and document archiving and retrieval. How did you find going from a law firm that was starting to have to look at technology seriously to then becoming a district court judge, in essence becoming uh, part of the Ministry of Justice? Well, just to give a bit of background, the Trash 80 had gone uh, and had been replaced by the PC or the Intel processor. It wasn't an IBM, it was an IBM clone and that had created its own interesting issues as far as copyright and so on and so forth were concerned, but that's another story. So... I went from an environment where there was a development of systems using digital technology into an environment where there wasn't. It was back to the HB pencil and a piece of paper. And a group of us, and I rem- remember Jajan and Satyanand uh, was one, he later became Governor General, Justice David Tompkins, Justice Bob Fisher, Judge Paul von Dettelson, uh, thought it might be a good idea that judges should have computers. And so we led a project called Computers for Judges and started to develop that. At the same time, the ministry was looking at automating its case management systems and so on and so forth. So it was an idea whose time had come. I think for, for those that were around at the time in the, in the 80s and early 90s, public perception of a courtroom, unless someone had had direct experience, was probably what they gathered from TV, the likes of LA Law, Arnie Becker, which really painted a picture of a large 
room, wood panels, uh, a judge sitting in an elevated section at the end. Uh, not, not, a lot, not a lot's changed, Chris. <laughs> well, we do need to come back to that because that's a very important topic and it's a very much the aspect of this podcast is to talk about what has changed and what the future might look for. If we just delve back in that period, other than perhaps microphones and a public address system, there wouldn't have been a lot of technology being used in the late 80s or, or even the 90s in courtrooms. No, there wasn't. One of the early projects involved the digital recording or yeah, the recording of, of evidence because previously evidence had been taken down by shorthand uh, transcribers and then typed back. There was quite a considerable project that went on for some years involving the utilisation of digital evidence recording so that the stenographer with the shorthand went. It was all replaced by a centralised evidence recording system and the transcriptions can be made available during adjournments and things like that. There's a centralised transcribing place uh, somewhere. <laughs> I think it's in Wellington. That's what, what I've been led to believe. <laughs> I, I don't know. Where, I know at one stage that it was in Albany in Auckland, but it may well be in Wellington. Place doesn't matter. You're talking about digital technologies and, and networked systems. The important thing is that we get the transcription back, which we do. And it's the same with judgments, sentencing notes, directions, minutes, and, and all the rest of it. They're all recorded and they can all be distributed. For the listeners, just so they better understand this, in a modern courtroom now, there are microphones for the judge, for the witness, for the lawyers. What is said can be recorded and the recording can be transcribed remotely at distance, whether that's in Wellington or elsewhere. During a hearing or a trial, as evidence is being given, it's being recorded on the fly and being transcribed. Usually, if the transcription service is operating at its um, potential, it's producing a, a written record of the recording very quickly. That can be often emailed and sent straight through to the registrar for printing, who then hands the notes of evidence to the judge and counsel. I present for the Law Society a national workshop on evidence, trial preparation and proof and one of the tips that I often give participants is that at the beginning of a trial or as you're setting up, uh, you should always give the registrar your email address and ask if the notes of evidence can be emailed to you as they're available because of course once you've got that PDF file you can then search through it which makes running a trial significantly easier compared to the antiquated old system where you had to use a pen and a highlighter and poster notes and try and recall through good memory what a witness may or may not have said. Yep, that's exactly right. The other thing, of course, too, is that if you think that there's been an error in the transcription, you can call for the audio to be played uh, so that you can check the accuracy uh, of the transcription. I don't know if it's done, but it's possible that it could be in that on an appeal the audio could be made available to the Court of Appeal. And I certainly know that the Judicial Conduct Commissioner, when there's been a complaint about a judge's behaviour in court or something like that, will call for the audio file and will listen to the audio file and make an assessment based on that. So the audio file fulfils a, a number of different roles. Yes, of course, a transcript gives you a very monolithic view of what actually took place. The audio file gives far more context oh, to gives, tone. 
gives nuance, yeah. everything. Everything's yep. there. Yeah, yep. yeah, absolutely. Talking about modern technology now in, in New Zealand courtrooms at least, one of the big developments was AVL, audiovisual links, particularly for prisoners held in remand, uh, etc. But what it really did introduce is a form of video conferencing as a way in which direct particip- physical participation in court was no longer necessary. What's your views on that? Well, there are two ways of presenting evidence in court other than in the usual way uh, as defined in Section 83 of the Evidence Act. One is what I call a temporal way of giving evidence, which is pre-recording the evidence or part of it and then playing the evidence in court. And the other is more of a a location-based situation where the evidence is being given in real time but the witness is not actually present in the courtroom. And that's where the AVL link and the Courts Remote Participation Act of 2010 comes into play. And it means uh, that by virtue of the provisions of the statute, a person may be considered to be in the courtroom, even although they're beaming in by way of AVL from a different part of the country. And there's another part of the Courts Remote Participation Act, which is quite interesting, which I was having a discussion with with some other judges about a few weeks ago. And that is, if the judge is located in one country, and if the witness is located in another country, and if the proceedings are taking place in a court in New Zealand, where is the court convened? And the court is convened in the country where not necessarily where the participants are, but where the hearing is taking place, which of course is in New Zealand. Mm. So it would be feasible for you to have a judge sitting in a hotel room in Honolulu, dream on, (laughs) and and able to conduct a hearing by way of utilisation of the court's remote participation act. All of the participants could beam him. Uh, in that way. I think I recall uh, reading one of your articles where you actually mentioned that topic in relation to the state of Washington versus Donald Trump. And I think you mentioned that in that particular hearing, the judges were remotely placed, the lawyers were somewhere else, and of course the then president was somewhere else at the time. That's right. It was a completely remote hearing by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The judges did not occupy the courtroom in San Francisco, which is where the Ninth Circuit sits. They were distributed. The lawyers weren't present in the courtroom either. The whole thing was conducted remotely. The whole argument was conducted remotely. And and, and this raises quite an interesting issue because one of the arguments that people say about remote hearings and digital hearings and things like that is, oh, yeah, but what about the openness thing? Well, the interesting thing about the state of Washington and Trump was that because the hearing was live-streamed, 130,000 people were able to beam in and listen to it. Now, you can't get that number of people in a courtroom. So open hearings, that's one way of doing it. Well, that's 130,000 people live. Worldwide. But, but of course, it's now an archived hearing, and anyone can access it and view it. So in terms of uh, open justice, the potential is effectively only limited by the number of people on this planet and their access to a computer and, and the internet. That's right, and whether yeah. or not the server can the server can, can handle deal it. With it. This is certainly an area which one of your colleagues, Professor Richard Suskind, has written extensively on. Yep. He's certainly commented on the issue of openness because of the fact that there's a lot of criticisms by what he calls a status quo bias against starting to 
open up courts through the use of information technology. Yep. And you're sort of taken on board a view that's aligned with him. It's very forward thinking that there is an answer to all of these criticisms, criticisms of uh, lack of transparency, concern about fairness of proceedings, the digital divide, etc. Richard came out with his views on online court in about February 2015, and I was fortunate enough to have a sit down with him a few months later, and we talked through a number of issues, and he has presented at conferences and universities and so on about the online court, and has written a book about the online court and the sort of modern view of justice. It would be fair to say that the impact of COVID-19 on the courts brought chickens home to roost <laughs> as, far as, as far as online courts were concerned because effectively the only way that courts could continue to offer a service, and this is one of Richard's arguments, that courts should be viewed as a service rather than a place, the only way that courts could continue to offer a service was by way of remote working where people wouldn't actually physically come in contact with one another and the spread of the disease wouldn't take place. But the other thing that has happened is that Richard himself has modified his views. He hasn't stepped back from the idea of an online court for the resolution of small claims, what we would call in New Zealand small claims or disputes tribunal type of work. These are monetary claims up to about $30,000. That's right. Yeah, £25,000, I think, was the the limit that he set, $50,000. But Richard wrote an article recently in the Times, I think it was within the last week, where... I think he suggested that online services should be made available as part of a, a suite of options, if you like, where the courts could offer their services. Now, for example, a, a criminal jury trial runs into difficulties with online services, apart from the, apart from the provisions of the Courts Remote Participation Act, which, which have some very, very clear things to say about conducting substantive hearings in the criminal jurisdiction by AVL. But the criminal jury trial is one area where there are difficulties, there are serious difficulties about the utilisation of online technologies. Having said that, there is a body of work that is taking place in the United States about developing criminal jury trials, and that is really radical because they are wedded in the United States to the concept of the confrontation right. And the confrontation right virtually means that everybody's got to be present in the same place at the same time. The accused has got to be able to eyeball the witnesses. So having a criminal jury trial using technology is quite radical. One of the things that, in fact, I received an email about it this very morning, was selecting a jury online and the issue of demeanour. I mean, they have a different system of selecting a jury in the United States. They've wired them and they ask them questions about they know about the case and what they think about this, that and the other and so on and so forth. And one of the findings was that, well, actually, we get a better idea of demeanour on a screen with a close-up camera than we would get actually interviewing the person in person. So there's work developing in this area. It's not a closed book by any stretch of the imagination. David, this very much starts touching on some of the philosophical and policy underlying concepts about why our system of justice operates the way in which it does. And I think if we take it to its highest level, the first point is is that in a civilised society, we have a system of justice to help regulate in which citizens and state operate and behave amongst themselves and with each other. One of the points that you do pick up in your book, if I can actually just turn to it now, is you actually talk about 
what the purpose of a courtroom is in our system of justice. And you do make the point that the underlying theme of uh, information technology in the court is the better the quality of information available, the better the quality of decisions handed down. So you very much nailed your flag to the mast of what I describe as being judicial accuracy or, or judgment accuracy, and that is that the right judgment should be achieved. Your focus in that chapter of your book is how technology can help that objective occur. And this is very much the objective of, for example, the district court rules or the high court rules, is to improve the accuracy of decision making. What I do want to ask you about is is there's also a dual objective, and the dual objective, which I feel very strongly about, is one of access to justice. I've often felt that you can overcomplicate the rules, which acts as a barrier or an unintended consequence, where while you might be in a position to produce accurate judgments, if the parties to the to the litigation, whether that's a criminal matter, it's the police or crown against a defendant, or it's a civil matter, and you've got a plaintiff defendant, but they can be pretty much worn out before you even get to the stage of producing a judgment. Very much, if I was to use the phrase, the medicine is worse than the cure. Litigation fatigue. Yeah, lit- litigation fatigue. Your book, and it's certainly not a criticism because it's of immense value, I'd encourage anyone who's got an interest in this area to read it, particularly the chapter on information technology and courtroom, but it seems your focus is very much on the hearing and judgment stage. But of course, the lead up to a hearing and judgment, for those that have participated in it, they'll appreciate for those that aren't, that often that litigation life cycle the large bulk of it can be in all the procedural steps, the pre-trial, pre-hearing steps that can take years before parties actually see the inside of a court. And, and th- those processes in themselves can be very taxing and expensive. Do you see that technology can be used as a way of improving access to justice so that people can get their day in court without litigation fatigue, as you describe it? Absolutely. The thesis that I advance in the text is that the court is not this sort of looming presence in the sky, this magnificent, majestic edifice and so on and so forth. It's much simpler than that. It's a place for information exchange. And in fact, the practice of law, what we do is no more and no less than exchanging information all the way along the line. From the time that the client comes in with the problem delivers the information. The lawyer processes that information, relates it to legal rules, and then gives advice. So there's an information exchange going on right at that very first meeting and all the way through. And then the information exchange in the area of litigation expands to different narratives from plaintiff uh, on the one hand, defendant on the other. So underlying those narratives, there are evidential issues, primarily in the area of discovery. And in the past, discovery in civil proceedings has been an immensely complicating factor. And there is no reason why it should be, particularly in the digital era, where it is quite easy to undertake discovery using technological tools and e-discovery. And in fact, electronic discovery, in my view, is one of the big wins that technology has had in the area of litigation. It has been one of the most successful things that has taken place. Uh, in terms of of lawyers using technology. A lot of lawyers get very frightened about e-discovery and you do have e-discovery specialists and so on. But that, in my view, properly done, can short-circuit proceedings 
for example, it's very rare that e-discovery will turn up the smoking gun that, that's going to kill the litigation dead. But it's certainly going to provide added nuance to the competing narratives that are coming through. Once we get to that particular point, there are always the arguments that lawyers have about the admissibility of this or the admissibility of that, and that can be relatively quickly taken care of. And there is absolutely no need on one of those sort of procedural or technical type of arguments for everybody to put on a robe and traipse up to court, argue it out in the big room. That can be done by way of an AVL link or by a teleconference link or something like that. My own preference would be AVL because at least you see who you're talking to. And that can be done by Zoom or Microsoft Teams or or whatever. And that should speed the process. And furthermore, at least as far as Auckland is concerned, it would cut down on the immense travelling time that would necessarily be involved. Can I just pick up on that point? From an access to justice point of view, the complaint is for people who don't have the resources to engage lawyers to help them with the resolution of a dispute they're involved in is just the large cost. And if one breaks down a lot of those costs, they're they're costs of effectively inefficiencies that that technology could help solve. Yes. And and look, if I paint a particular example, we're sitting here in, in the central business district of Auckland City. If a matter is being called, and it may just be a case management conference, one of many that'll be heard by one duty judge in Manukau, as a lawyer, I have to jump in my car or an Uber to battle the traffic through to Manukau. When I finally get there, I'm then sitting in a courtroom with possibly up to 30 other lawyers who have their own matters that are there. The the judge comes in, it's funded by the state. The lawyers are all there at their respective hourly rates, all sitting around waiting for their matter to be called. The duty judge may not get through all of the matters in the first session of the morning at the adjournment, so I may roll into the second session of the morning. And then ultimately, when my matter's called, it may very well be dealt with within the matter of a few seconds where the judge has read the memoranda and then makes a decision if there's any difference of opinion between the lawyers on a short procedural point. I then go and jump back in the car or Uber, drive all the way back to my chambers. That whole process of FaceTime with a judge for could be 60 seconds occupies a whole morning. Now, at my hourly rate of $600 an hour, that starts making litigation extremely expensive if you then work out the hourly rate of the actual amount of time spent with the judge. Now, of course, you then multiply that by the 30 lawyers that are sitting in there. This is a phenomenal cost that could be saved through remote attendance, simply through having lawyers attend, whether it's Microsoft Teams or some form of of Zoom call. Do you have any views on that? Yeah, well, a number of words come to mind to describe the scenario that you've put, and I suppose the kindest one that I could use would be stupidity. Mm. Technology would take care of that, and indeed it has taken care of that, in that during the COVID lockdowns and so on and so forth, there were a number of occasions where lawyers made their appearances by way of audiovisual links. They used a a piece of software called Virtual Meeting Room, of which I'm somewhat critical. Zoom or Microsoft Teams is a much better tool. But the, the upshot of it was that the lawyer would be sitting in his or her office, would have an appointment time when they would be meant to be available, would beam into the court at that appointment time, would make their submissions, do their argument, hear their decision, and it was all over and done in about 10 minutes. No travel, 10 minutes. The thing is that all of the travelling time that the lawyer would otherwise have been involved in is spent on 
productive work in their office. There's no travel time on the way back. One lawyer, in fact, had administrative hearings in Pukekohe, Papakura, Manukau, Auckland and North Shore, five appointments, which under the normal daily grind would probably take them all day to get from the various courtrooms, Auckland motorway system and so on and so forth. They were able to accomplish that by something like about 11 o'clock in the morning. Five and of co- 11 o'clock in the morning. And of course that immediately provides part of a solution to the excess of justice problem because not only does it keep the cost for the parties down, but it also means that the lawyer is more accessible because rather than sitting in a car yep. where they're not able to serve the public, they're able to actually remain productive and continue providing legal services yep. to those that need it. Take the calls, give the advice, yep. all the rest of it. And the other thing, of course, is we mustn't forget the self-represented litigants. Now, one of the ways in which the system has been set up is that it really caters for legal professionals, for the people, the lawyers and the court staff and so on and so forth. And in terms of criminal matters, corrections, prison-based people and so on, there is really no reason why members of the public should not have access to court hearings using a mobile phone. And you have, I mean, FaceTime is sort of comes to mind, but that's probably not the best solution. But with a properly designed app, the litigant in person would be able to be at home or possibly even while they're shopping, have access to a judge to explain a particular problem that they have where they're seeking a solution. And look, certainly for those procedural steps in the lead-up to some form of hearing or trial, there really isn't any good arguments against that, where the court is simply wanting to hear from a participant. They don't need to actually have the participant physically there in person. And that's all envisaged by the Courts Remote Participation Act of 2010. And and I mean, that was a remarkably forward-looking piece of legislation, We were talking very much about open justice before, but in many ways this would improve open justice if people are able to access our courts more readily and more easily without it becoming such a burden and a strain for them. One argument against all of this is the digital divide argument, but that digital divide argument doesn't seem to to carry much water. One issue that I've raised with the Auckland Community Law Centre is the possibility that could become, using one of your phrases, an information hub, where people who don't have a computer at home, don't have an internet connection, they could at least go to their local community law centre who would have the technology there available for them and help them use the technology so that they can better participate in our court system. Court kiosk. A court kiosk. Simple as that. Absolutely. One area that I did want to touch on, and we we may circle a little bit back around there, is the issue of the risks of technology misuse in courtroom. And look, two areas that do spring to mind is the inappropriate use of mobile phones and jurors accessing the internet. Perhaps we just deal with the phones issue. I did go to a movie last night. Of course, if you've been to a movie that starts always encouraging people to turn their phones off. Are they still showing movies? They are still showing movies. (laughs) (laughs) Only a few days a week, though. (laughs) Only a few days a week. It was quite empty when I was with a couple of friends, I think, we had the the whole theatre to ourselves. The issue of the use of mobile phones, I've noticed as a practitioner, it seems to be one of those things where people forget to turn their phones off or for some reason someone may decide that they want to record what's going on in the courtroom without the approval of the judge. I mean, this is obviously an area of risk where technology could be misused in a courtroom. Okay. First thing, if you have your mobile phone turned off, then the sound of it ringing or 
some kind of alert isn't going to distract people, and that's probably the primary distraction. Second thing, most people these days, and, and lawyers are among them, are using their mobile phones for the access of information. And, and <laughs> I've, I've actually been in a situation where a lawyer has handed their phone up to me saying, here's the section in the statute. They've, they've gone to legislation.gov.nz and they've pulled up the statute and there it is, ka-ching. Not a problem. That's great. That's the way that technology should be used. The other thing, of course, is that many lawyers, while they're waiting for their case to be called, will be attending to day-to-day business, answering emails and so on and so forth. That's not a problem. Similarly, I myself do not have a problem with members of the public using their phones in court for similar sorts of purposes. As long as the sound is gone, that's okay. If, however, they want to take a photograph of a witness or a photograph of an accused or do something that's going to breach a non-publication order or court proceedings and put it up on YouTube or Facebook or whatever, they are in serious trouble because that could constitute a contempt of court. And there are remedies that are available for that. So you record proceedings without the permission of the judge at your peril. Let's just talk about that, because I think for a lot of participants or observers in the courtroom, lay people may not understand that what they're doing actually has some serious consequences to it. And and perhaps one of them is if we use the example of a jury trial, you could have... 12 members of the public who have had to take a large part of their day-to-day lives out to be able to serve on a jury, and for some people it's quite a burden. They could be partway through a lengthy, complex jury trial, and then because a member of the public has decided to take a photograph or a recording of a witness, suddenly you're into a potential mistrial scenario if it created an unfairness for the accused. The court resources all tied up over that period of time to have to go through and restart again. I mean, that could be a significant cost, but also inconvenience for everyone involved. Oh, sure. I wonder if a member of the public taking a photograph of a witness would be grounds for a mistrial, but what happened to that photograph might be an entirely different matter. And it may well be that that photograph is put up on Facebook, Instagram or something like that, saying this person was giving evidence in the Manukau District Court and they're a craven liar or something like that. And that could be a little bit unpleasant. And then that leads to what happens if the jury finds out about that? And of course the jury shouldn't because the jury's not allowed to go online and start making inquiries about cases and evidence and all that sort of thing, the phenomenon that I've referred to as the Googling juror, and I've written about that. And the problem of the Googling juror is now covered in the Contempt of Court Act, whereby if a a juror does do something naughty like like Googling about a case or something like that, then um, they can find themselves in some serious difficulties. Giving these directions to members of the public in terms of appropriate use of phones and to jurors and use of the internet, etc., there's very much a reliance that those directions are going to be complied with and followed because there isn't an easy technological solution to removing the risk of that happening. I call the fact that you give judicial directions that they're going to be followed as an article of faith Mm. because there have been incidents of Googling jurors and so on and so forth, who have gone online to get stuff about cases and so on in the face of judicial directions. Some bodies of opinion say forget it, let them go. Other bodies of opinion say the integrity of the court process demands that an accused be convicted only on the evidence that they hear in court, which is, of course, absolutely correct. And I probably favour that latter view rather than the former one. But the other thing that this raises, of course, is public confidence in the judicial system. And 
it is something that's really, really important because the rule of law requires that there be confidence in the system. Judges, courts don't have the power of the purse. They don't have the power of the sword. They only have the integrity of the way in which they conduct their proceedings. And there are certain elements in society who have a mistrust of the court process, who have a mistrust, well, have a mistrust of government, have a mistrust of any sort of organised system. And that's very unfortunate because they are the beneficiaries of the rule of law. The rule of law is there for them as much as it is for anybody else. And it would be an unfortunate situation where you have a a system that says, well, you've actually rejected the rule of law and therefore it doesn't apply to you, you're an outlaw. That's not the way that it works. It's there for everyone. And the level of confidence that people might have in the law is entirely up to them. And it may have arisen from unfortunate experiences or a lack of understanding or something like that. And that is why, as far as I'm concerned, process is absolutely critical. You've got to have an honest, integrity-based, transparent process to get to a result. And I've had a situation where I come to a decision and the evidence has been heard, the decision has been delivered, and you can see the losers nodding. And you think, great, they understand, they know that they've had their day in court, they've had an opportunity to be heard, and they're prepared to accept the decision. And, you know, that is quite a fulfilling sort of moment. For a lot of parties to litigation, what they are often looking for is not necessarily the win, but just actually an outcome, because they can't move forward with their lives while that dispute is occupying it. And this is really one of the key objectives, certainly from my view, for access to justice, is to enable people to be able to transition or follow their the litigation pathway journey from beginning to end as quickly and as efficiently and less stressful as possible. And this is where technology can help. Sure, yeah. absolutely. And then they can feel that they've had their fair day in court, yes. irrespective of outcome. Yes, even although they mightn't have set foot in a courtroom. Even though they may not have set, set foot in a courtroom. We were on the topic of technology misuse, but I note in your book you also cover a topic, or you've got a subtopic here, of what happens when technology goes wrong. And you've undoubtedly seen this at the coalface in the courtroom of where the technology's failed. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, there's a whole lot of different ways that the technology goes wrong. One of them is when you have a remand prisoner who's due for a hearing at 20 past 10 and something has happened at the prison end and they say, excuse me, but uh, we're not going to be able to get this person along here for another 10 minutes or something like that. Well, that isn't so much the technology going wrong, but certainly it is one of the areas where reliance on the technology has a whole lot of sort of ripple effects down the line. There have been occasions when there's meant to have been an appearance by way of AVL or by way of virtual meeting room, and I can remember one case in particular where counsel was unable to get hold of the virtual meeting room software. He was at the High Court in Auckland. And what I said was, look, get your mobile phone, call this number. I said, I'll put you on speaker. Everybody in the court will be able to hear you. Gave him my mobile number, (laughs) set the phone on the bench in full view of everybody, and we were able to conduct the hearing in that way. So courtroom technology went wrong, but we quickly devised an alternative solution. A A backup. And it complied with the Courts Remote Participation Act. What I wanted to also do now is probably circle back around, and we're kind of jumping 600-odd years back to the time of the subject matter of your doctoral thesis and book. 
In its subtitle, that is the printing press as an agent of change for law and uh, society, I wonder whether or not the lessons that you learnt when you delved deep into there and the effect the printing press had on the law and society at the time, this is just pre the English Revolution, I think, couldn't the same be said about information technology, the computer and the internet, the combined power of it as an agent of change for law and legal culture here in New Zealand? Oh, for sure. The printing press study was quite an interesting one because I wanted to do a law and technology thing, but I realised that the field was changing too rapidly to do one about digital technology. And as an example of that, I started that thesis study in about 2006. The degree was conferred in 2012. In that time, Facebook happened. Social media happened, which just shows you... The the world changed. Yeah. In retrospect, it was a decision that was fed by an enormous amount of wisdom. But what I had was a period of time when the data was set. Everything was known. A snapshot in history. So it was what happened when you had a largely scribal, what I call a scribal or manuscript culture, that is confronted by the printing press, which as a result of six or so inherent qualities that the printing press has that we don't really think about, what impact does this have upon this particular culture? Part of the thesis was, was it a revolution? And my conclusion was that it was not. Did it have an impact? Was it an agent of change in law and legal culture? Yes, it certainly was. But the impacts that we felt, such as the reliance upon printed material and so on and so forth as authoritative statements of law took some time, but that began to develop as a result of the use of the printing press by the lawyers of the 1500s and the early 1600s. You see, in 1530, for example, there was a case where the lawyers were were citing precedents from, from their notebooks. They kept their own notes of cases. And these they would share around. There was, a, there was a great sharing culture in the inns of court. And they came through with this particular case. And the judge said, put that case out of your books, for it is not the law. Obviously, they recorded it wrongly. In another case, somebody was trying to explain a statute. And in those days, the judges actually had quite a degree of input into the legislation process. And one of the judges said, do not put a gloss upon that statute, for we wrote it. So there was this reliance on handwritten material and what lawyers could remember. I mean, there was a huge memory culture. Their memories were immense Mm. in those days. And then very gradually, the printing press began to come in. And in 1571, a lawyer by the name of Edwin Plowden developed a reporting process for courts, for court proceedings, that was the prototype of the law reports that we have today. And then that was taken up by a judge by the name of Edward Cook, spelt Coke, who had a bit of a difficulty with his sovereign, James I, and wanted to put his version of what the law was, and so developed Cook's reports. And there were some 13 or 14 volumes of those, together with a couple of other treatises, that made their way into print. And Cook used the printing press with devastating effect in getting his message across. Do you think there's parallels between the development of the printing press back then to the emergence of computers and the internet today? Yeah, in essence, the printing press introduced a new means of communication that had underlying it certain properties. For example, if you have multiple copies of a printed document, that means that you have accuracy and repetition of the contents, and it also means that they can be disseminated very, very widely. 
There's no need for somebody to sit down in a library and take a handwritten copy. It automatically goes out that way. Now, when you look at digital technologies, in many respects, some of those underlying properties of the printing press are available as well, in the sense that making the copies is fundamental because that's how digital systems work. It's all about copying. But in every courtroom, there's a yeah. printer. Yeah, but, but I mean, computers don't work unless they copy. Dissemination of material is worldwide. It's called going viral. And then, of course, you've got other qualities that are available in digital material that aren't available in printed material, which is the concept of searchability. And all of a sudden, this introduces a whole lot of new ways of how we deal with information. And I've described this in a book called Collisions in the Digital Paradigm, which was the PhD thesis that I wanted to write before I, right. <laughs> before yeah, I yeah, did the printing one. press yeah. thesis. Yeah. But the printing press thesis was necessary before I wrote Collisions. This actually now segues us into the future and what the future may hold, but I certainly get the impression from you that there's a lot more potential that's available with the use of information technology in courtrooms to better improve the accuracy of judgments and reaching conclusions, but also in terms of access to justice. But there are always impediments to change, and I note that Susskind, he makes the point that rather than taking a big bang approach to change in terms of a remote or computer-based courtroom, that rather you need to have more of a gradual, incremental, pilot-based system where the introduction of the system can be examined, refined and adapted to make sure that the system is achieving the purposes that it's set for. Oh yeah, I mean, theoretically, the environment within which the doctrine of precedent and stare decisis could have taken place existed in the 1600s. But it wasn't until the 1700s and 1800s, the late 1700s and the 1800s, that it really began to flourish and it really began to get some kind of traction as far as lawyers were concerned. So this is a slow and incremental process, but I think that you know the pace of change today is a lot quicker. What I think the law has got to be, or the, I suppose the legal system has got to be very careful about is that it is not seen as falling so far behind as far as technology is concerned that it loses public confidence. And this gets back to this public confidence thing. You know, we've got to be seen to be using the tools that people use in their daily lives to have any sort of credibility. As relevance. As the, yeah, yeah, or relevance as far as the delivery solutions, legal solutions is concerned. So we mustn't be afraid of getting involved with new technologies and using technologies. Now, there's, of course, there's a lot of pushback, and that's a cultural thing. I mean, I come from a culture where fountain pens and, and paper and all the rest of it is the way in which we worked. And in many respects, what I do in my daily life, and I'm not only talking in court but everywhere else, is a cultural response. There are technological solutions to the way in which I can do things, I just don't use them because, hey, I'm more comfortable with this. And I think judges and lawyers, particularly of my generation, and I'm in my 70s now, sort of, well, I actually I feel pretty uncomfortable about this and, and, and this isn't the way we, we did it. And really, it, well, it works pretty well. Why should we change? And, well, if we want to remain relevant... And if we want to have any sort of acceptance of what it is we do, we've got to move with the times. So is is this overcoming the OK Boomer status quo bias? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, okay. I sit yeah. right in the middle of, uh, the, of the boomer <laughs> generation and proud of it. All right. <laughs> now, look, you do make the point in your book about the introduction of technology to court. You say the introduction of new technologies to the court is frequently accompanied by a steep learning curve. The normal pattern is resistance to new ideas, followed by tentative rather than willing acceptance of new technologies, and then an enthusiastic embracing of them. So is this one of the barriers to change the modern courtroom to make it more accessible through new technologies is actually having to go through more of an, an incremental approach. It's got to be. And getting the stakeholders on board. Yep, it's got to be. But you see, the thing is, and this is what is interesting, is that I came onto the bench in 1989, was when I was sworn in. A long time has elapsed, you know, 30, 30 plus years has elapsed since then. So there's a completely new generation of judges who are coming on stream now in their 50s and 60s who have an entirely different cultural experience from me. And they're going to be the people who are going to be more willing adapters of technology because they've seen how it works in their law practices and they've seen how it works. I mean, they use the internet. Some of our judges, interestingly enough, one of our judges I was speaking to wasn't even born when I started practice. You know, it's an entirely different generation. And so there's a generational aspect to the development of technology in courts that will facilitate the gradual and incremental development and the use of technology. And it may well be that when the next generation comes through, the the students at law school now hit the bench, that it will be an entirely different experience from what I have undertaken. And certainly, you know, the job description has changed in the last 30 years, believe me. You mentioned before, a very good point, if one was to look at the courtroom or the delivery of justice via a courtroom as being as a service, one area which uh, I've been quite critical of is in relation to the, the rules committee, not having a person around the table who's actually a user of the court system, that is an actual member of the public, the actual consumer. So rather than the rules being directed by judges and some members of Crown Law, etc., that there really needs to be someone who has some say around the table to give a different perspective from a user's point of view. Do you think that there would be any benefit in actually having younger people who are the users of the courtroom having some perhaps input or consultation in what the future of a courtroom should look like? In theory, yes, of course, because the whole system should be user-friendly and you can't work out whether or not it's user-friendly if you don't talk to the users. Your basic rules of technology implementation is what do the users want? The first question the software developer asks is what do you want me to do? How do you work? What are your systems and how can I translate those systems into code that will have some kind of digital outcome and that will make your way of working so much easier? So of course it should be user-friendly. I suppose in some respects there's a little bit of a bias against involving the users because, uh, well, you know, they don't have experience and so on and so forth. But, I mean, after all, they are the people. We did have an attempt to make some user-friendly district court rules in 2009 and then that sort of fell by the wayside and basically you have district court rules and high court rules that are parallel and complex. Just before we wrap up this podcast, and I don't want to put you on the spot because I know you're not a futurist, but I am going to ask you whether or not perhaps you could outline your views, if you have any, on what, say, a, uh, a modern courtroom in New Zealand might look like in the next 10 years. Okay. 
it's going to retain a lot of the artefacts, if you like, of the existing courtroom. I think that in some respects it's important that the decision maker be distinct from the rest of the participants, so there'll be a bench or something like it. There should be a witness box, because that's important, so that everybody knows what that person is doing and what the function is. But I think too, as far as the witness box is concerned, behind it there will be a screen, so that the witness will be beamed in, will be in the same place, if you like, as a witness would be if they were there in person. I think there'll be a podium in the middle of the courtroom which will be full of technological stuff, laptop or some kind of digital uh, recording device or something where counsel can immediately display on a screen which will be at the back of the courtroom where everybody can see it, uh, the evidence, the paper, the document that they're referring to, they'll be able to highlight, they'll be able to emphasise, they'll be able to put a circle around figures and so on and so forth and all controlled from council's podium, which means that you're going to have to have tech-savvy council. But I think that, you know, you were asking what the future's going to be. I think we'll have tech-savvy council in in the future, so that shouldn't be a problem. There'll be cameras there so that the whole process can be live-streamed. There will be no need for anybody to sit in court unless they really feel like they need the exercise of walking to the courthouse and and going and having a look and, and sitting down and seeing the whole thing. Because of live streaming, you'll be able to see the proceedings from the comfort of your own living room, study, mobile phone or wherever. So in some respects the existing design of a courtroom will be there as far as the artefacts are concerned, it's just the way in which it's used will be entirely different. I mean, for example, behind the bench you might have a screen so that the judge can beam in from wherever they might be, you know, even if they're held up in traffic or something like that. You know, plane was delayed so uh, you can still beam in and do the hearing that way. Using your mobile phone. And I think mobile phones will become the tool because there's more processing power on a mobile phone than was present on the, on a, the Apollo 11 flight. So. It was very much a mobile device that you can make telephone calls on more than anything. A telephone call? What's yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> David, I mean, you've painted uh, the future of a courtroom as being quite different to what it is now, but one of the things as a takeout that I'm taking from that is probably the growing or future importance of technology education for lawyers and also for judges, that the need to be able to start keeping up to date with rather than play follow-up with emergence of technology and to be able to get better utilisation and use of it in day-to-day practice and in the courtroom. Absolutely, yeah. David, I want to thank you very much, completely sincerely, that this has been a most fascinating podcast. You've gone over a large number of topics We've covered some areas which I think uh, justifies further study and comment. So I want to thank you very much and thank you for participating in the podcast. Thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under.